Some of you know I grew up in Richmond, Virginia, just a few miles west of a place we know as Jamestown. Jamestown, 1609 to 1610, that winter is now known as the Starving Time. And uh, it's known that, for, known that way for a reason. Um, at the beginning of that winter, there were roughly about 500 settlers there in the Jamestown settlement. Before spring came, there were 60. It was a terrible, terrible time. The reasons for what happened and why we know it today, rightly so, is the starving time are fairly simple. Uh, when those settlers established where they were going to make this colony, they deemed their greatest threats to be uh, other nations who were going to be possibly coming up from the south and colonizing and trying to take them out. And so they were trying to find what would be a good strategically defensible position there on the banks of the James River. Well, in terms of that, they picked a great spot, a really, really well, def easily defensible spot as far as something like that was concerned. The problem is that that spot was also right in the middle of a swamp. Now, to be fair, uh, from the beginning, they really didn't have in mind growing their own food. Uh, the plan from the start had actually been uh, to institute some, some trading relationships with the neighboring tribes, and then the hope being that that would hold them in between the visits from supply ships coming back from England. But the problem was is that tensions over time, and it didn't take much time for this to develop, tensions between the settlers and the surrounding tribes were such that that level of trade was just not possible. Hence the starving time. In hindsight, it's pretty clear that they failed to make the necessary preparations for a difficult mission. It's pretty clear that they failed to make the necessary preparations for a difficult mission. And the reality is that it is quite possible for followers of Jesus to do the same. And he would not have us to do such. Hence he speaks, and hence the text that we're going to be looking at together here this morning. So if you have a Bible with you, I'd ask you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 through 25. Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 through 25. If you have a Bible with you and you're trying to find Matthew, it's not too hard. It's the first of the books of the New Testament, uh, the first of the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke. John, Matthew is where we are moving through slowly but surely in this series of the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10, beginning in verse 16, on through verse 25. Hear now God's word. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, 
You will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the songs that we have been able to sing. And as was noted earlier, there's some rich history and heritage behind that. Uh, some stories with uh, those lyrics and those authors. Uh, we thank you all the more, though, for your word that we have been able to read thus far. Um, thank you for the context of the sacrament we have observed and celebrated, uh, for your intentions for us, um, for the the uh, family that is uh, blessed with this that, this day and us along with them, the larger family too. We thank you now for this moment of being able to delve into your word um, and this particular passage. And thank you for your love for us such that you would not have us to be unprepared. Uh, you would not have us to be moving out expecting one thing and end up getting shellacked because our expectations were of something else. Uh, we pray that you indeed would prepare us, sober us, but encourage us. Because we ought to be. We ought to be because of who is sending us and who accompanies us and who goes with us. We ask that you would truly encourage and inform and shape our hearts now, we pray in your name. Amen. You know, it's tough to be a Russian ambassador these days. Um, back in December, the Russian ambassador to Turkey was assassinated in an art gallery. Over recent weeks, you may have heard, and if you didn't hear, it's because you're probably on an expedition in Mars. Uh, the now attorney general, when he was a senator, is being, oh, I don't know, at least spoken about, maybe even investigated to some degree, as far as conversations that took place back during the presidential campaign uh, conversations that took place between him and the Russian ambassador. And now, as though that wasn't enough, we have the very recent and very sudden, mysterious death of the Russian ambassador to the United Nations. It's a tough gig, being a Russian ambassador. Ambassador, how do we define that? Merriam-Webster's Dictionary defines it this way. An official envoy, a diplomatic agent of the highest rank accredited to a foreign government or sovereign as the resident representative of his or her own government or sovereign for a special and often temporary diplomatic assignment. And you may know, if you've read through any of Paul's letters, he uses that image of an ambassador to describe indeed what followers of Christ are to be in this world. We are to be Jesus' ambassadors, if you will, uh, resident representatives of the greatest of sovereigns, the King of the Kings and the Lord of the Lords. That is to describe in many ways what followers of Jesus still today are to be and, and to do. And that was certainly true of the apostles, the original 12, literally the, the sent ones going forth in Jesus' name. And we, we looked at this last week. Uh, after the, Actually, I guess it's been the last few weeks we've been building up to this, this point uh, where, where Jesus has, has charged them, is sending them forth, and they are to be going forth, carrying out his priorities, proclaiming his message, and doing so in his power. 
Um, and all of that, with that, going forth in his name, they're also to be expecting his reception, which sometimes wasn't so good. And we get a hint of that. We saw, got a hint of that just last week. We see it, well, it's not so much a hint, it's kind of like right in your face uh, here this week. Um, and it's summed up beautifully there in verses 24-25. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master if they called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Jesus has already begun to experience hostility and pushback from the scribes and the Pharisees up there in the region of Galilee, and he is seeing in that a prelude of what is coming, and he is trying to give his disciples, his apostles, advance warning as well, as once he is gone, that hostility is going to shift from him to them. And they need to be ready and readied, I guess you could say. Verses 5-15, through 15, that's where we were last week. Jesus was preparing his apostles to go forth on what we could call a short-term mission trip exclusively, uh, predominantly, to the Jewish people right there in the region of Galilee. Now, here in verses 16 and following, uh, we see that he is preparing them. He has his eye for the horizon, something, a mission beyond that. And we'll be looking at that, Lord willing, some more next week as well. Uh, both of those missions were to be understood as an extension of his own. Both of those missions were to be understood as a, an extension of his own, his own ministry. But also, the reception, how they were going to be received, needed to be understood as an extension, if you will, of his own as well, because they were going forth in his name. And going forth in his name, they needed then, therein to expect opposition and resistance in his name. And that hasn't changed. That hasn't changed at all in terms of, uh, of the call of what it means to go forth into this world in the name of Jesus. We have to expect that same sort of opposition and resistance. And this is where we're going. We are being sent. We need to understand that if followers of Christ today, disciples of Christ, Christians are being sent forth in the name of Jesus, therein, as we go, we should then expect resistance. We are being sent forth into this world in his name and therein should be expecting, expecting resistance. That comes out in the three themes of our text. I want to drill down in together with you over the next few minutes. The first one being awareness, the second one being provision, and the third one being division. So you have awareness, provision, and division. In all three, you see this this idea predominantly coming forth here in this text that we're being sent forth in Jesus' name and ought to therein expect resistance. So awareness. Uh, Jesus wants us to be prepared. We've said this already. I want to delve into that a little bit more. Verses 16 through 18. Look, look at what Jesus says in terms of where he's sending us and how we should understand that. The images that he uses are, are plain. Verses 16 through 18. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them 
and the Gentiles. So where is he sending us? What does he, what does he say? He says, I'm sending you forth like sheep. Sheep, these defenseless creatures who are utterly dependent upon the care of their shepherd. Okay? We're sheep. Now that's, he's used that imagery of, of sheep as the third time. Uh, second time in chapter 10, they saw the first time there at the, towards the end of chapter 9. Uh, this is something that he keeps coming back to, but now he's describing not just the people in general, but the disciples themselves. We ourselves are going forth as sheep. And where are we going? In fact, be more pointed. Where is he sending us? Into a wolf pack. Not just like brazing up and looking at the wolves from afar. Oh, aren't, oh well, that's interesting over there. But right into the midst of them. The sheep are being sent right into the midst of the wolves. Now that's the crazy. At least it sounds crazy. So how then are these sheep to survive? Well, he tells us, and he uses a, a, in a different, different animals, now not sheep and wolves, but serpents and, and doves, opposing images. Uh, the idea being, and he says, you know, you're, the, 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 the serpent being wise, uh, as, as, as crafty, as cunning as a serpent, but at the same time also being uh, as, as innocent, as um, calm, as plain, as transparent, trusting as a dove. Now, those images sound completely counter, uh, opposite of one another. They're meant to balance one another out. The idea being that, yes, we are to be innocent, but not uninformed, not naive. We are to be wise, but not to be perpetually suspicious and cynical. The two images are meant, the best of the two images are meant to balance out one another, going forth at the same time as these sheep-like serpents, serpent-like sheeps, in the best possible sense of that understanding. So, okay, that's where he's sending us, what he has in mind for as he's sending us, but what else? What's the end game? An expanding ministry. And you see that uh, as for the apostles, they're being sent forth initially into a Jewish context, a clear mention of the synagogues, members of synagogue. That's how you're going to be disciplined in the context of a synagogue is when you're a member of a synagogue. And we certainly see that in the very earliest days of the church before there was really a rift between the Jewish Christians and the synagogue itself, this is the earliest days of Acts. That's what he's referring to here. So, but then, as they're being driven out and dragged before Gentile rulers in formal court testifying settings, so an expanding ministry is what Jesus has in mind here, going forth in this way, uh, and a continuing testimony, an expanding. Uh, ministry and a continuing testimony as they go forth in word and deed in a gospel-saturated life response, especially in the context of great duress. There will be an expanding ministry and a continuing testimony to the peoples that Jesus the king has come. And that is the explanation behind how, not just what they're saying, but how they're able to stand and say it in those terrible, terrible times. Jesus would have us to be aware. He would have us to be aware of, 
of what we're called to be and to do and why and where he is sending us. Something like a self-defense instructor, right? As he or she would bring us into the class and say, look, you need to be aware of, not just the moves and all that kind of thing, but you need to be aware of as you're out there in the community in, in unknown, strange places of where you are. You need to be aware of your surroundings. You need to be aware of that looks unusual and that looks odd and that looks out of place and how then to respond. You need to know where you are. And that's what Jesus is saying to us here. We need to know where we are. If I may use some Old Testament images here, they're not original to me. They're very good, but they're not original to me. My friends, we do not live in Jerusalem. We do not live in a cultural context where everyone is speaking to you as believers. If, if, if that's not where you are, then please just listen in and try to stay with me. As believers, we do not live in a cultural context where everyone around us agrees with our values, priorities, and practices. That's Jerusalem. We do not live in Jerusalem. We live in Babylon, in a place of exile, where the surrounding culture does not understand and does not comprehend our values, priorities, and practice. In fact, need to go further. It's not just doesn't understand and doesn't agree with, but actually, in many respects, will oppose that. We do not live in Jerusalem. We live in Babylon. And we need to understand that. That needs to shape our expectations of every day as we move forward, and therein we can be protected from these surprises that come. Oh my goodness, because if you think you live in Jerusalem, but you actually live in Babylon, you're in store for a lot of rude awakenings. Jesus would have us to be clear as to where we are. We have been sent in his name. We should then expect resistance. That's the first thing, awareness. Secondly, provision. In the midst of that, as we go forward, what does he say? What encouragement, what comfort, what assurance does he give us? Well, we see that here as well. Verses 19 through 20. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Okay, there's a challenge. A challenge that Jesus is making very clear here. In fact, it's a challenge that to these first hearers, as they're, as they're really paying heed to what he's saying and, and under grappling with what he is telling them is to come would sound intimidating, terrifying, frightening at the very least that they're going to have to they're going to be thrust into such situations with the challenge an inevitable trial. You know, Jesus doesn't say you know if this happens, he says when this happens, when this happens, not not just. A, a, well, possibly in a figurative sense, you're going to be put on trial. But he's saying literally, you're going to have to stand. You're going to be thrust forward and have to give an account, a defense, of why you refuse to just go along, with why you just refuse to play along, with why you refuse to just bow down. Bow down. And say Caesar is Lord. You're going to be called on to give an account for that. 
That challenge, that challenge is coming. But with that challenge comes a promise. And that promise is rooted in His commitment to us. I want you to look back at verse 25, towards the end of the text we're looking at this morning. Probably didn't notice this. It's sort of hidden in there. But it's worth noting. Verse 25, It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Okay, Jesus is making clear that even though, or even as, the master of the house or the head of the household, he is going to be blasphemed and maligned, he therein is saying, how much more than who his household? Well, who's, he, who's in the household? Who's he just implying there are his? Members of his family family, under his protection, his disciples, his followers. From, from Right there implicit in the whole thing is his commitment to us and rooted, or, or I guess it, you could say um, stemming from, flourishing out of, growing out of, that commitment to us is his care for us. And that's where you see here in verses uh, 19 and 20, what we just read a moment ago, uh, this promise of the Spirit. The Spirit itself, the same Spirit who has been at work encouraging Jesus, enabling Jesus, empowering Jesus, upon whom He, the Son of Man, the Son of God, has been depending for strength and guidance at every step of His ministry. That same Spirit, He says, is being sent to encourage and equip you. Now, I want to just a quick aside here. This is not by any means an excuse to not be prepared. And sadly, there have been a lot through the years that have used it just that way. Uh, this is not an invitation or permission for slackness as we go forward. This is not a, a promise to those who fail to prepare. This is a promise to those who are unable to prepare who don't have the opportunity to prepare. There's a subtle but important difference there. Jesus is saying, I go with you. I send my spirit with you. You need to be aware. You need to know of his provision. Let me relay to you the martyrdom, the story of the martyrdom of Polycarp. Uh, Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna, uh, was martyred in 155 A.D. He had been a disciple of the apostle John. Kind of interesting to, to think about. Um, was 86 at the time of his death. It was a season of violent persecution against the church there in that region of Asia Minor. Polycarp's friends had been begging him to leave the area, escape. We know what's coming. They're looking for you. He refused. Eventually he was found. He was arrested. Uh, he was marched into the city. City officials met him along the way. Uh, this is one of the quotes they said to him. They pleaded with him, come now, where is the harm in just saying Caesar is Lord and offering the incense and so forth. When it will save your life. And their pleas fell on, on deaf ears and Polycarp was led into the arena. And I'm going to pick up here. That's something of a synthesis of, of Fox's Book of Martyrs. There, what I just relayed to you. Now I'm kind of picking up Bill Bennett's new book, uh, Tried by Fire, a great uh, history of the first thousand years of the church. This is how he records some of the, quote, the quotes we have from ancient sources and synthesizes and pulls it together. There, Polycarp faced the governor, who also urged him to recant. Have some respect for your years. Swear an oath by the luck of Caesar. 
own yourself in the wrong and say, down with the infidels. Polycarp indicated with a sweep of his hand, the assembled crowd around him and said, growling, down with the infidels. Well, the governor's patience was at an end and he pressed him once more, take the oath and I will let you go. He told him, revile your Christ. Polycarp would not relent. Eighty and six years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? The governor continued threatening him with devourment by wild beasts and then being burned at the stake. But Polycarp was steadfast. The fire you threaten me with cannot go on burning for very long. After a while, it will go out. But what you are unaware of are the flames of future judgment and everlasting torment which are in store for the ungodly. Well, that was it. And displaying great courage and deep joy, Polycarp was then chained and burned alive. Now, if that great hero of the faith was here in our midst this morning, and we were to ask him how he was able to do that, to be so steadfast in this moment, I promise you this is what he would have said. It was not by my might, but by Christ's mercy. It was not by my power, but by his provision. And my friends, the longer you serve the Lord Jesus, the longer you follow him, and the more steadfast your stance in his name in this world, the more surely I can say to you, you will face such trials. Now maybe not on the level of gravity and drama of that, but you will be forced and put into a position of making a choice. How will you choose? Where will you stand? How will you stand? I can assure you also of this. On the authority of the Scriptures, He is faithful and He will stand with you. He will stand with you. He has sent us forth in his name, into this world, we must then expect resistance. The same resistance that anyone else has ever faced in his name and that he himself experienced as well. Lastly, not just awareness and not just provision, but now division. We see this picking up in verses 21 through 23. It gets all the more stark, all the more plain. Brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Jesus is speaking here of a terrible, terrible animosity. A universal uh, hatred and hostility being experienced, of, of relational rifts, of, of natural bonds that are put under great test and strain, breaking and frankly just being shattered. And, and the reason for that hostility, the reason for that, that animosity of one to another is because of an allegiance to Jesus. Because of an allegiance to Jesus and a cry and a conviction on the part of, of others insisting 
upon tolerance, even in the midst of their own intolerance. Now you think I'm making a commentary in the 21st century. I am. But that's an old story made new. It's the same thing the apostles were facing in their own day. And it hasn't changed. Or we are told to be tolerant. Even by those who themselves in that moment, in that time, who are being quite intolerant of our intolerance. This terrible animosity, but as bad as that is, Jesus also speaks here of an eventual judgment. Now, that's verse 23 is where I'm looking at in particular, and I will just from the start acknowledge there's a bit of debate among scholars as to what exactly Jesus is referring to here, and I'm not going to delve into all the... It depends on the commentary you look at. I mean, one might say there's two options. One might say four, another might say eight, just depending on you know, what kind of umbrellas they put them under. I'm just going to tell you where I think we need to land. I think where we need to land is his understanding that ultimately what Jesus is speaking of here is the destruction of the city of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., which was just a few years down the road from when he is actually speaking these words. And so what he's saying there is you need to know what's coming and you need to keep moving, keep going. Don't let yourself get caught up in what's coming. And then, by the way, I mean, historians, especially Josephus, if you want to go back and you can find this online, it's very easy. Read of the horror, the accounts of what was transpiring there on the, the Roman siege, roughly 68 AD uh, on through 70 and a little bit beyond, there especially in Jerusalem itself. Just horrific, the siege and the famine and the terror of what was transpiring there in those times. But as bad as that was, as bad as that was, the greater significance of that, it was, it's ultimately a sign of a greater judgment to come. And Jesus speaks very plainly to that in the latter chapters of Matthew. Now, one day, I don't know when, we'll get there in the course of this series. But Jesus is very plain on this, he's, he, and this, this terrible animosity, this eventual judgment, this division, and he would have us to know of that, to be clear on this, not, not just in the sense of awareness and provision, but division. Um, division, I guess, I alluded to this earlier, is, is certainly something that people are talking a lot about these days, and some meaning well will say something like, you know, our, our country's never been so divided. And I, I scratch my head. Again, I grew up in Virginia. There's a few Civil War battlefields there. And I think to myself, have you never heard of the Civil War? Where quite literally, in some cases, brother was taking up arms against brother? Fathers against sons, sons against fathers? Some roughly estimated 650,000 men died in the course of that conflict? That's division. I don't mean to make light of, of our things today, but, but then even still, Jesus is speaking of something even deeper. And again, it begs the question, why the hatred and why the hostility? Why the anger? Why the animosity? And again, I come back to what I've said already, but I just want to press a little harder. Jesus refuses to play along with our pluralism. He refuses to be listed one among many options. He re refuses to be polite. 
but he will speak the truth. He stands against all our cultural gods, our cultural false gods, our idols of freedom, independence, and liberty of expression. He stands against all of our individual gods, as Francis Schaeffer used to say, of personal peace and affluence. He stands against all of those things with a, like a jealous lover demanding the hearts of those that are rightfully his, their, their affections, their attention, their love. And he does so with a compassionate heart as well because he sees the outcome. He sees the trend line. He sees where such false hopes and loves will take you and me. Because false gods, idols, false hopes, false trusts are just that. False. Empty. Making promises they cannot keep. And will leave us bereft. He knows that we become ultimately like what we worship. Like what we put our hope and trust in. False, futile, and empty. And so he speaks and will not play along with our pluralism. And yet he will still be resisted. And he sends us forth in his name. And so too we must expect that same sort of resistance. This is not easy. By any stretch. Um, the promise is, he sends us forth on this mission, a mission that is difficult. The outcome is sure. The greater ultimate outcome. But the individual details, you know, little individual plot twists and what's going to happen tomorrow, we're not told that. We're just told, go. And trust me as you go. Last week, uh, I was sharing with you an excerpt from C.S. Lewis's uh, The Silver Chair, one of the uh, books in the Chronicles of Narnia. I want to share just one more excerpt from that same book, if I may. Um, you, uh, you may know something. I'll just remind you if you don't, uh, or tell you if you don't, remind you if you do. I guess that's how that works. Um, the great Aslan, the lion, has charged Jill and Eustace and Puddleglum, the, uh, the marsh wiggle, with going forward and trying to find whatever it takes to try and find Prince Rillian, who has been enchanted by an evil witch. And Aslan has given them four signs that they are to abide by in this quest. Now, by the time you get later on into the plot and the scene that I'm going to read a little bit from for you, uh, they have already blundered on three of those signs. But there's a fourth one, and the fourth one goes like this. You will know him. You will recognize the prince when he charges you, when he pleads with you, when he asks you to do something in the name of Aslan. Alright? So as the story unfolds, they find themselves trapped in a room, an underground room, with this knight who is said to be insane. His ravings are so violent that he has been tied to a silver chair. And there he is. And our heroes, those three, uh, Jill and Eustace and Puddleglum, uh, witness one of these ravings one night. And, and it sounds, though, like 
the pleadings for help, not the, the ravings of a lunatic, but pleadings for help. And, and, and well, I'll read you what he's, I'll tell you what he's saying. He's saying, I'm not insane. I'm not insane. I'm enchanted. I'm bewitched by day. And they've tied me up. She's tied me up. And it's, I'm clear. I'm lucent in the night. Now! And so he says to them, begging them, if you have any pity, cut my cords and set me free. By the bright sky above, by the great lion, by Aslan himself, I charge you. Now, is, is that it then? It sounds like it. Um, he's asked in Aslan's name, is that the fourth sign? And, and poor um, Jill cries out, if only we knew. And then Pumaglum replies, well, I think we do. And Eustace then says, well, do you mean everything will come right if we untie him? Hmm. Pumaglum says, I don't know about that. Aslan didn't say what would follow. He only told us what to do. That fellow may kill us once he's up. But we must still follow the sign. Now, spoiler alert, um, they do set him free, and they come to find he is the prince, the very object of their quest. My point being, though, back to Pumaglum's very wise words. Marsh Wiggles are always worth listening to. Um, whenever you meet one, pay heed. Uh, the mission is not easy. No promise has been given to us that it is easy. Um, in fact, in most many cases, much of the journey is indeed walking by faith and not by sight. But let me be clear. That faith, that trust in which we are to walk is not a blind one. It's not one in which we have no idea who we're following, who we're putting our faith and trust in. That's not it at all. Blind leaps of faith are actually sub-Christian. There's nothing like that in the Bible whatsoever. It's a step of faith, an informed step based on what we already know of whom we're stepping with and towards. This one who has already shown himself, amply so, his great goodness and his power and his mercy. This one who has assured us of his better purposes and plans far beyond our ability to even begin to envision. This one who has sealed his love, not just in his teaching and example, but his very life's blood shed for us. That's who we're following. That's who we're to put our hope and trust in. We've been sent in his name. Ought to expect the resistance, the same resistance that he himself experiences. It's a shared resistance. We go forth in this ministry, his ongoing ministry, in us and even through us. Let's pray together.